2: Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California, can't wait to drop this don't you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that, smash like song, in my song's gon' break through like a running back.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and my colleague, my friend, my neighbor, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly isn't joining me today, which can mean only one thing. We are being joined today live from the UK by friend of the show, Planet F1 writer extraordinaire, Mr. Sam Cooper. Sam, how are you, my friend? I'm good, face. That's a very flattering billing. But yeah, I feel much, <laughs> much better for that now. <laughs> Of course, my friend, any time you and I were just talking a little bit about the weather and you were mentioning that in the UK, it's been, despite the fact that really it's only the beginning of July, it's been pretty hot for a while, hey?
2: Yeah, it's unseasonably warm in London. I like, um, think we're not used to it as a country, so like everyone just sort of packs up and goes to the, well, I would say to the beach, but I live in London, so there's no beach near here, but some kind of area <laughs> where you can sit in the
0: sun will be good. And I think the important takeaway for people, especially those that live in hotter climates that are accustomed to having air conditioning, nobody in the UK has air conditioning. That is just not a thing. So when it's hot, people just suffer, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. All our houses are really old, so they've got terrible insulation. They're not good at getting the heat out. And like, like you said, no one has air conditioning because... 95% of the year, it'd be a complete waste of money. Like, you could just open the window. It's cold enough. But yeah, the, <laughs> the few weeks in summer where we get, everyone's just like, oh my god, why don't we have air conditioning?
0: So we're going to run through a couple of laundry items before we get started. First off all, big shout out to Race Weekend, Magnus and the team. They have just dropped their latest issue, the F1 Champions issue. It is fantastic. If you're interested in subscribing, head over to theraceweekend.com. Use Pod as your promo code to get 10% off your subscription. Big shout out as well to Teese and the entire team at Racing Exclusions. Exclusive, the Netherlands-based F1 memorabilia site that is producing and shipping some of the finest F1 memorabilia that you can find, all of which, of course, includes a certificate of authenticity. Uh, Another big update, merch... On the way, I think we've kind of we've been talking and teasing about this for years and years and years, but we've made some big progress in the last couple of days and we should have something exciting to announce later this summer with a hopefully November launch hoping to align that launch with the Las Vegas GP also on the Las Vegas GP. If you happen to be in the Pacific Northwest in late November, we will be hosting our very first Grand Prix watch party. It is going to be at my house. If you're interested in attending, the only price, the only cost of entry is a $30 donation to the Canadian Mental Health Association. So now that we have all of the laundry items out of the way, Sam, I wanted to jump right into the news. And you've written a couple of stories recently that I thought were very interesting. One of them includes some comments from, as you write, F1 guru, Adrian Newey, who reveals that the sole focus of Red Bull powertrains, of course, this is the new entity that was spun up by Red Bull a couple of years ago when they decided they wanted to produce their own power units uh, when Honda had announced they were exiting the sport. And of course, they've sub- announced they're coming back and they're going to partner with Aston Martin but he mentioned that the entire focus of Red Bull powertrains is on the 2026 season would you care to expand a little bit on your findings and the story
2: yeah so I think it's no real surprise I'm sure as you listeners know but I'll give them a, a rundown anyway like Red Bull currently sort of this halfway house between being their own independent supplier but also they've got help from Honda because Honda as you said initially said oh we want out of F1 the 2021 season Red Bull were like right okay what do we do we can either go back to being a customer team and we all know what we'll happened to Renault like that wasn't a particularly nice time for either party so they said okay let's take it all in house let's do it but obviously it's one thing to say that it's another thing entirely to get a power unit supplier up and running so yeah Honda agreed to help them out but that all changes in 2026 when red bull sort of goes independent they're gonna have help from ford obviously but honda's gonna go like you said work vast in mind so yeah what agent Newey basically let on it was interesting because it was an interview sort of about how much is your car like sort of being made ready for the 2026 regulation he sort of let on not a lot on the chassis side i think we all sort of expected that because the main chassis regulations happened in 2022 so the one in 2026 is much more focused on the power unit and obviously there's only so much Asian Jew can do that. He's more on the chassis chassi side of the of the team, at least. So yeah, I think he sort of said that this whole new power unit division now really focused on twenty twenty six. So if you think if Red Bull has such a massive advantage at the start of twenty twenty two, that's because they absolutely nailed the regulations. So what they want to do is. Comes 2026 they want to continue that dominance i know a lot of f1 fans don't want to hear that at the moment because they're winning every <laughs> other race but it makes sense even this far out what are we like two and a half seasons away even more than that from 2026 but yeah they're going to start focusing on how do we get the most out of these regulations how do we make sure that when it comes that we're the engine that
0: every team wants, really. It's such a fascinating story, right? And you touched on this a little bit that at the end of 20, when I first started doing this podcast with with Mark Daly, one of the first stories that we talked about was Honda's leaving. They're leaving F1 again. And it was this the sigh of resignation that we've heard the story we've seen it before and they announced originally that they'd leave at the end of 21 and of course in 21 they win the drivers championship with that controversial conclusion at Abu Dhabi but they they effectively won a title and they were supposed to exit the sport for 2022 and originally originally the plan was they were effectively going to hand the blueprints to to Red Bull and Red Bull would build those engines in house and that changed and what they ended up deciding to do was hey you know what Honda will continue to build the engine because of course they the engine specifications the formula was frozen we'll just keep building the engines through 2025 and ship them to you in a crate and you just badge them and they did a little bit of that but then i guess honda got a little bit anxious because they were experiencing so much success that they put the honda logo back on the power unit and back on the car but it's this weird situation now where honda's going to continue to produce their power units through 25 while red bull is simultaneously working on their 26 power unit with ford and honda's going to start working on the 26 power unit with aston Martin for the 26 chassis. It's this. It's this phenomenal story, and only in F1 would you see this type of complexity and slithering, snaking of relationships. Right. Um, he did say, and you have this great quote here from Nui as well. He says, "On the chassis side for the 26 engine, we're looking at how that package is." Uh, so Rob Marshall, and you have here editor's note: Marshall will leave Red Bull to join McLaren at the start of 24. Is kind of the guy that's really looking after us, and he's doing a great job. Looking forward to how we integrate all of that. But other than that, we don't have a proper set of ergonomic regulations or anything else yet. Go on. So there's no point us in spending too much time on that until we have much more defined set of regulations. So I thought that was a really neat quote to include in here because we keep talking about 2026 is going to introduce a new power unit specification. We don't need to get too much into that, but we can also anticipate new chassis and aero regulation right like am i misreading that or do we anticipate a, a not insignificant reset of the chassis regulations
2: yeah there's definitely gonna be some changes i don't think it'd be to the level of 2022 was i think that was very much they sort of did this new new era of formula one and two parts three really. so they did the 2022 get the chassis done and then get these engine units. but obviously this new engine is going to have an impact on the car like even to something as basic as the size of it like i think new mentioned that they've sort of they don't know how big it is so they can't really plan how big their chassis is going to be and how, how to work around that so yeah I think we will see definitely a, a change in cars like some of these engines they prefer I don't know high downforce, stuff like that teams might try and work that out but yeah I think it won't be a massive change I think they'll roughly if you I mean if you fast forward, or well, it'd be four years now. I think the cars look roughly similar to what they are now, but yeah, maybe just a bit more fine-tuned to the exact engine that they've got underneath
0: them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. It is interesting when you think about this as well, that one of the benefits of being a works team is you can design the chassis and the power unit and subsequently the gearbox and the rear suspension all together. And if you're a customer team, you kind of have to design your car around the power unit and gearbox that you're given. And in this case here, the teams are being told develop a power unit, but you don't necessarily know what that chassis is going to look like or how it's going to cradle. So it's it's an interesting time. My friend, the next story here I thought was an interesting one, and it kind of ties into something that you and I are going to talk a little bit later, talk about a little bit later in this podcast. But you have a quote here from former F1 driver Christian Danner, and he's speaking on the topic of new F1 teams joining Formula One and their ability to be competitive. And, and he says here, it's going to be impossible. It's not going to be difficult or very difficult. It's going to be simply impossible. I think with a little bit of common sense and a little bit of experience in this business, you should realize there is no chance that a new team can actually fall on its feet. I don't think it's a good idea to enter a new team. So first of all, um, where did you manage to surface that quote and maybe expand on what he's speaking about here? Because I think a lot of listeners are excited at this concept of one or maybe two teams on the grid, but a lot of people are throwing cold water on the idea. Some people out of pure economics, and others because they just don't think a new team could possibly compete competitive. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so on the quote front, um, it
0: came from an interview with, actually one of my friends called Ed Spencer, he works for
2: the Total Motorsports, I think he spoke to um, this chap, I want to say at the Monaco Grand Prix or the Spanish Grand Prix, so it was quite recently, so obviously we're still in this phase where the FIA is sort of deciding on like these new teams sort of their viability and it sort of goes back to that quote of like we spent so long deciding if we could do it no one actually saw should we do it like everyone's sort of focused on how do we get on the grid and you're right there's just another gonna be another huge step to. yes you can get on the grid but then you're already so far behind these 10 other teams that have had years and years to sort of develop their team develop their cars stuff like that so I mean, it's no doubt that whoever gets... If someone does get on the grid, it's going to be a huge challenge to be competitive. I think it'd be really unrealistic to think... If I use Andretti as an example, I think if Andretti get a spot, say, 2026, I think it's going to be hugely unlikely they're going to be challenging for race wins or podiums or stuff like that. I think it's very much going to be, okay, let's get our feet in the ground. Let's sort of just finish races, really. Let's just be a part part of it. Maybe they've got title ambitions further down the line, but then if you look at another example, so sort of Audi who are doing this other sort of way in of buying a team or at least becoming a partner of a team, they're a huge company and even they aren't predicting they're going to be fighting for wins in that first first season. Like, they sort of appreciate that all of these other teams have had such a head start and even with them, they're getting their own head start by working with Sauber. But, like, I think he's sort of right to point out that I wouldn't say it's pointless because obviously there's a lot of commercial benefits. So yes, you'll spend a lot of money, but you'll get a lot of money back. You get a lot of sponsorship. You get a lot of more people seeing your brand around the world. So there are those kind of benefits. But yeah, I think to say that any team would come onto the grid and immediately challenge the likes of Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari, and, and even Aston Martin now, like I think that is that is quite unreasonable. And I think if we do have a new team, if they do get, finally they get the green light, I think it'll be at least three or four years before they're even to like challenge the top end because if you think this is like one of the most competitive sports in the world like everyone's spending every day trying to work out how do they get these cars like tenths of seconds faster like it's a huge gap to the very top and like it's very hard to get even any kind of progress so yeah i think i would say these these people who sort of have these ideas that they've obviously got big dreams they want to win world championships but i think if they do get on the grid it's probably going to be quite a uh, like a humbling experience when they realise they're getting lapped by Williams or something like that.
0: <laughs> I, I say this knowing full well that the economic conditions at the time were very different but you you don't need to look a lot farther than toyota's experience in formula one that they came in and they spent a mountain of cash and scored only a handful of podiums before they exited and bmw came in spent a mountain of cash and exited the sport and honda previously when they had their works team through 2008 spent a mountain of cash and exited the sport and none of those three and their manufacturers with all the financial resources in the world they couldn't be Competitive. Uh, one of the things that I certainly credit the FIA for is that, as part of this uh, expressions of interest process, is that they're requiring that potential teams provide. The groundwork and an understanding of how they could be economically sustainable. So I think what the FIA is saying is like, look, prove to us that if you are massively unsuccessful for five years, you are not just going to crash out of the sport because that's not good for anyone. Like I think what they're what they're actually asking these teams is you need to prove to us that you're prepared to be awful for an awfully long amount of time for exactly the point that you just spoke to, which is it's very difficult to come in and be successful because you may have all of the machinery, you may have all the equipment, you. You may have the wind tunnel and great drivers, but what you don't have is data. And everything in F1 is about accumulating data because data influences and forms the decisions that you make. So interesting story. And I think it ties into something that you and I are going to talk about a little bit later. My friend, the next story, and this is one that's uh, obviously it's coming quick and and, you know it's funny like it feels like it was only yesterday that there was rumors about a Miami Grand Prix hitting the grid and here we are now just July, August, September, October, we're just five months away man, almost five months to the day away from the inaugural F1 Grand Prix and of course F1 has raced in Las Vegas one before but we're getting very very close and you had an interesting quote here from Lando Norris who is absolutely hyped about the concept of racing on the strip in Las Vegas Nevada and he says I just don't think people realize just how cool it's going to be. Like You're driving in the streets of Vegas. Everyone knows Vegas. You've seen it in movies and the stories or whatever. Everyone kind of knows it. So just the fact it's the strip getting closed down just for us to go and race is just such a cool thing to think of. So I'm really looking forward to it. I've never been to Vegas. I've been in and out of Vegas many years ago. I had to go and do an event, but I didn't really get to see anything. I just went in and out. So this is my first proper time going to Vegas. And he finishes... This layout it looks odd just on a piece of paper when you see the track layout, but I think it's going to be a good qualifying track, a good race track, most of all, which is only something to look forward to. For us, it's a good race track, and you can look forward to a Sunday that you can go out and race, no matter if you're first or last. Those are the places you look forward to most in a way, and then it's in Vegas, so double, double whammy. My friend, obviously, people over here in North America, traditional F1 fans, longtime. F1 fans, new fans, they're, if not excited, they're intrigued. And I think we're generally compelled because this is going to be something that we haven't seen. For starters, it's a Saturday night race, which is unique and novel. So a very early Sunday morning race for our European listeners. What is the buzz about the Las Vegas Grand Prix outside of North America? I think our listeners generally know know what it's like here. But what are people saying? What are people thinking about? What I think Liberty wants to be the crown jewel of the championship.
2: I think the best way to probably describe it is cautiously optimistic. I think... Like you said, there's sort of an intrigue of how it's going to be, but I think... What a lot of the European central fans don't want to be, sort of become a gimmick. And I think if I go back to the Miami Grand Prix, I think I don't know what the reaction over there was, but to that intro with the drivers coming out and Willie I, will I am It was not that, like, good. Yeah, yeah, it was I'm not good, good. good. Like everyone over here was like, what on earth is this? This isn't F1. So I think everyone's sort of seen that and they're now like, oh God, we've got Vegas coming up. Is it going to be even worse? But like, I think that's just a very like negative side of the view. I think a lot of people are sort of just looking forward to, like Lando said, like I think Lando's been one of the biggest cheerleaders for what He's been like, this is amazing like why isn't more people excited about us but just the fact that you're driving down probably one of the most iconic roads in the world like yes we have a lot of street circuits but aside from monaco like we're not exactly driving in like places you'd really recognize like a visual visually like oh that's there that's that place i recognize like to see like it's hard to even picture the moment having f1 cars driving down the strip so yeah i think there is a reason to be excited but i think yeah everyone just sort of like waiting to see how it pans out maybe we'll get a better idea after austin i know austin's sort of a bit of more of a like an f1 like hard like people have been there for a few years they tend to go to austin i think but yeah i think everyone on the european side of things is sort of like we're looking forward to it but we want to see that there's no will i doing
0: like driver and again like, no <laughs> thanks none of that please thank you yeah yeah you know it, it's It's interesting because when when the Miami Grand Prix was originally being touted, the plan was that it was going to be raced downtown on the waterfront across the bridge and that the backdrop was going to be this spectacular ocean blue, uh, emerald blue water with the skyscrapers. And ultimately what we got was a Grand Prix in a parking lot at a football stadium. And again, I'm not trying to downplay it, but that's ultimately was, is is a hybrid track in a parking lot. And I think that, the race organizers have done a tremendous amount of work to create a good racing environment and to make it look good on television. But if you had told me five years ago that we're going to Vegas, I would have assumed, okay, somebody's going to build a a, a circuit specific or a dedicated circuit in the desert outside of the city. I just I never would have imagined they would have overcome the logistical challenges to make this happen. And I think a big part of the reason it didn't happen downtown in Miami is bureaucracy. People live in those buildings and don't want the inconvenience of a Formula One Grand Prix blocking off their streets for two or three weeks. In Vegas, this is a tourism first city. The people that live there are generally in the industry and they understand that this is the type of thing that drives the city forward. So to your point, to be driving down the strip or racing down the strip at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night is going to be something iconic. The one thing that I think nobody can predict at this point and i'm I'm sure the teams get a general sense because they're probably running it through the sim and people are going to be able to play it in f1 2023 on their playstation their xbox soon is how raceable this track is going to be but i i just wanted your perspective because i think you're right that in a way miami is a bit of a litmus test and hopefully hopefully we can minimize the gimmicks a little bit on that one the next story, my friend, is one that I thought was a little bit intriguing, but Damon Hill uh, has suggested that he knows or uh, has an inclination about who might be the next legitimate Red Bull contender. And I was I was doing a podcast yesterday with uh, Bryson Sullivan, Natural Paradigm from Twitter. Um, interestingly, he just got a follow the other day from Dan Fallows, but he was talking about the fact that his preseason and in-season and ongoing prediction was that Red Bull simply cannot continue to win every Grand Prix. That at some point, there's going to be some... Uh, bad luck when it comes to reliability. But furthermore, the competition is just going to continue to close that gap and close that gap and close that gap. But you have an interesting quote here, and I'll let you take this one away. But Damon Hill believes that a specific team has the ability to leapfrog Aston Martin and Ferrari and potentially emerge, as you write, as the second strongest team. Do you want to speak to who that is and how he came to that conclusion?
2: Yeah, I think your listeners could probably guess, having read Aston Martin and Ferrari. So yeah, it's Mercedes, which I think... I'll actually like go back to my preseason pre like predictions that I thought Mercedes would be the second best team. Granted, this was before Bahrain, so I didn't realize they were going to have this many problems straight away, and I didn't I wasn't expecting an entirely new car by Monaco. But I think Mercedes have always been quite a good team at developing. I know last year was a bit of a one off just because their concept was so bad to begin with. They were trying to up- upgrade it in like. I don't know if this is a phrasing of, but you can't polish your turn. So, like, they were trying to find a way to make something that was inherently bad good. So, like, at least now they've sort of accepted that that was never going to work. They've sort of got a concept that now works. And now that we're at this point, I think Mercedes are going to be the team that develops quickest, going to develop smartest, like, focus on the areas that they need to build on. I think we saw in Barcelona, in Spain, that's, that's a track that's you wouldn't say it's entirely suited to any team. It's sort of, that's why it gets used as a test track. It's got sort of got benefits to everyone. And the fact that Mercedes were able to get a double podium finish, like even ahead, finished ahead of one of the Red Bulls. Like I think that really shows how strong their car is just after one or two races with this new package. Obviously they've now had these, this two weeks off, they've got more time to sort of understand what works, what doesn't work, maybe get another package ready for, for Canada. Yeah. So I think, I think Damon Hill is entirely right to say that Mercedes are, are the team that's most likely to catch red bull but when i say most likely i don't think that makes them likely to do it i think red bull is still very dominant over uh, over the other teams, and like you said like i i think it's very unlikely we're going to have them win every race like it's never happened in the history of formula one like we've got 22 races this year like that's a long time to win every race so yeah i think i think mercedes will definitely win a race at some point this season like i think that's just going to happen like like you said Red Bull might have an issue, like Max might crash somewhere. Like, it sounds, it sounds quite rare at the moment, but yeah, he might have an off somewhere. And I think Mercedes have sort of put themselves in the position now to be the first team to react if Red Bull do have issues.
0: A, a couple of thoughts just to kind of build on what you're saying there. One, you're right. We, we're we seven races into a 22 race season. There are 15 Grand Prix left. There's an awful lot of racing left. But the, the other consideration when it comes to at least fighting for P2 in the championship that, Aston Martin is where they are and of course they've slipped to P3 in the constructors' championship but they were only ever in P2 because of the heroic the heroic racing and driving of Fernando Alonso that Lance Stroll has not contributed in any meaningful way to their successes in the Constructors' Championship this year. And when you look at Mercedes, if they have equal cars, if they're equal on pace and equal on downforce and and grip and all those other uh, kind of performance KPIs from the chassis and, and the power unit, they have a distinct advantage in the driver pairing over Aston Martin. And I don't think, you know, given equal cars, I don't think Lance Stroll has given anyone anyone confidence in suggesting that they could compete for P2 so i think you're you're probably right to suggest that hey mercedes is there now whether they can catch Red Bull, that's obviously probably not something that's likely to happen. But I think the question is, how much can they narrow that margin of defeat before we go into 2023, when obviously they'll bring a a significantly revised challenger? My friend, I'd love to to ask you a a couple of questions on this topic. But first, I'd like to take a break. And when we come back from break, I want to finish up on this topic. I've got a bunch of listener questions for you. And then I've got some other stories to get to as well. So folks, we'll be back in 30 seconds. See you on the flip side.
1: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me once again from PlanetF1.com, the one, the only, Mr. Sam Cooper. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that Damon Hill had picked... Mercedes to be potentially the the next prominent challenger to Red Bull, uh, now that they seem to have brought, as you suggested, almost an entirely new car. They, they have a new floor, and they have a new front suspension, and they have new side pods, amongst a bunch of other tweaks. If you were to suggest at this point that a team other than Red Bull win a championship, or not a championship, but a team other than Red Bull win a race this year, do you assume it would be, I guess, based on what we were talking about, really, it's ultimately probably going to be a Fernando Alonso because he puts himself in a position to lead a Grand Prix. But at this point, after their P2 and their P3 in in Spain, it's probably going to be a Mercedes, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think if we look at the other contenders, so I think I think it's fair to say you've got four top teams this year, those being Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari, and Aston Martin. And I think if you go through the various teams, like I like said, Mercedes got a very strong Driver pairing, and I think it was the car that was holding them back. And whereas Aston Martin have got a good car, but there's no doubt that Fernando Alonso is sort of pulling it an extra level up. Like he's making it, he's getting the podiums. It's through his driver talent. And yes, Stroll has done a lot worse than Alonso, but like it's hard to sort of know where that Aston Martin car is really in terms of pure performance. Like if we had another driver... i say if you put Russell in the Aston Martin car and sort of compared him to how Alonso is doing, it'd be interesting to see that would sort of give you more of a baseline of where the Aston car is. It's the fact that we've got the highs of Alonso at the moment and sort of the lows of stroll. It's sort of difficult to tell where the Aston Martin car really is. So I think if another team does win, like Aston Martin do with a shout just because of Alonso. But I think if they were going to win, I think it might have come at Monaco or it might have come at Spain where he's very familiar with these tracks. And then just... Moving on to Ferrari, I think they've got another two good drivers. I've always always rated Leclerc much higher than Sainz, but I think there's just so many problems within that team. Like, the car, it just absolutely shreds through tyres. Like, there seems to be problems with the management, like, the higher-ups getting involved. Like, they just look... If I had to do a ranking, I think I'd put Ferrari fourth, sort of, as the team most likely to get a win. Like, there just seems so many issues that the car's not that great this year compared to what it was last year. Leclerc seems like bereft of confidence compared to where he was this time last year. Like, there's infighting as with various teams. There's, I mean, how many how many people have left Ferrari this year? Like, it seems every month. Like we hear this senior figures going off to this team kind of thing. Like, and and so far we've heard of no replacements coming in. So yeah, it's just a very bad time at Ferrari. So yeah, if you ask me, like, who's gonna finish first if Red Bull don't? I think Mercedes, Aston Martin, Ferrari. have to be my order most likely
0: let's switch gears pun intended and let's take some listener questions so I, i sent out a tweet before we recorded and we got a bunch of questions for you so i filtered through them uh partly because i thought these were the most interesting ones but the first question here comes from amani in london and she writes do you ever get breaking news but you can't publish or report and how do you corroborate stories before you publish them
2: that's a great question um yes is the answer to the first part of the question i mean embargoes are like hugely I think they're relevant in all types of journalism but especially like sports journalism and f1 journalism so often I mean it all depends how friendly you are the teams like how much they can trust you so there'll be teams that send us or me like advanced copy of okay this is happening so as an example like when McLaren launched their car this year I think I got the pictures Maybe the morning off, saying like, here's the car, you can get your articles ready, but just don't post it until you see the car on their live stream. So like that happens quite a lot. Like there's a lot of embargo pieces saying, don't do this kind of thing. And obviously, like when I say embargo, it's not like a legal thing. Like if, if you broke it, you're not going to face punishment from like the law or stuff. But it's essentially the death of your career kind of thing like as soon as not even just with that team as well like if one team finds out that you broke another team's embargo like why are they going to share with you like there's absolutely no benefit like they do these things to like sort of be nice to the media to sort of like keep the media on side so if if you're going around and sharing pictures of mclaren's car before they themselves are showing it they're gonna be like right well put him his name on a list of like never never send any information to this guy again. Don't interact with him kind of thing. And um, so yeah, I think embargo stories are massively like influential in F one. Like so those are the sort of the only ones you can't publish right away. Um I think on the other flip side of it sort of you might get some news that you sort of want to back up, like you said, corroborate. So again, that's sort of working with like your contact data like whether that's with F one, whether that's with someone in the team and like if I'm honest, most often times they'll come back saying off the record this isn't true, blah blah blah, like and then it's your sort of point to get that across, sort of saying that's when you'll often hear like sources say or like we understand that sort of that's code for basically like I've been told this, but I can't tell you I've been told this. <laughs> so yeah, like I think yeah, it's important to corroborate the stories a lot. I think anytime that you have like something that's gonna be major impacting on the sport like or something that's not been confirmed by the teams or maybe by f1 itself i think it's always worth checking like is there any point of this is there any truth in the story because otherwise you put the story up and then you'll get like an angry phone call an hour later saying that's complete rubbish take it down so like you just wasted your own time so it's massively important to sort of double check with people who work in a place that they would know if it's true or not so yeah i think anytime you see a report on any kind of site, I think you've always got to wonder, have they checked this? Have they cooperated cooperated this with multiple sources or at least
0: someone in the know before you think, yeah, that's true. The next question here is from Layla in Cairo and she writes, and this is more of a personal question, but which Grand Prix do you look forward to most and why? And which Grand Prix do you wish would return to the Formula One calendar?
2: Ah, good question. I think my bias in me would probably say Silverstone. I think that always produces quite good races and I think just the obviously living in the uk sort of the country gears up for it it's sort of the country realizes that f1's a sport again and sort of goes goes mad for it um in terms of other tracks i like obviously the japanese grand prix is always very good like in terms of the the driver skill uh I've gone completely blank on any other kind of uh, any other kind of tracker though but yeah i think those ones personally i'm a big fan of monaco like i know it has its detractors but like not the racing side of it but like i like the I just think it deserves its place. The parking yeah, it deserves its place in F one. Yeah. Even if the best action is on the Saturday, and in terms of um, tracks to come back, I think yeah to have one in Africa because so obviously Kilim is sort of like the the main one from there. Yeah, I think just to get Africa as one of the at least have a race on
0: the perfect segue into the next question that comes from Emma conveniently in new york and she writes do you think f1 will ever look at resurrecting the failed new york slash new jersey grand prix that bernie Eccleston had tried so hard to launch a decade ago and we talked about this on the last podcast originally it was supposed to uh debut on the 2013 calendar it got dropped off and just never happened but any sense of whether that might be a possibility or whether there's any murmurs of it being worked on
2: i think it's unlikely i think the new owners sort of Steer clear of anything that Bunny eccleston did or has done. Like I think all those deals that he had are sort of dead in the water, unless they're still racing of course. And I would see just from a logistical point of view, you've got three U.S. races already. Like so, presumably if New York arrives, that's gonna have to drop another one off. And like, which one do you choose? Like I think the most the obvious answer would be Miami, but they've just spent all this time and effort sort of making it a race itself. And like, there was rumor like a few months ago, which turned out to be not true, that they were gonna have one in London. You thinking like. I don't know what the case in New York, but, like, you're just thinking, where on earth would they do that? Like, it might be, like, New York, but it's, like, so far out of the city that it's not really New York kind of thing. So, like, a bit like Miami, I suppose, in a way. But, yeah, I think it's unlikely in the near future. I haven't heard any rumours that F1's sort of looking into that. And if we think everyone's so busy already and, like, they've got so many requests from various countries dying to hit on the grid, like, I think if they gave a fourth race to the US, I think there'd be plenty of other countries and, like, to be like oh, okay well what's the point of us even try and like ch- get a grid if they're just going to keep giving it to the u.s really
0: anthony cullen writes and this kind of touches on something you mentioned a few minutes ago but looking at the current f1 calendar i guess the remainder of the fir- current formula one calendar where will red bull be most vulnerable To lose their win streak. You suggested it could have been Monaco and it didn't happen, and it could have been Spain and it didn't happen. But where else in the remainder of the 17 races?
2: I think to ask this question, you sort of have to ignore characteristics. Because I think if we look at every track, there's an argument to say that Red Bull could be strongest there just because their car is such an all rounder, good at corners it's good at high, high speeds whatever like there's no yes a car might be better in corners than Red Bull but like the overall package of the Red Bull car is just so strong that I think you have to sort of in that but in my research to answer this question I weirdly like I mean we just mentioned it a minute ago but I looked at Silverstone and I didn't realize that Red Bull haven't won there since 2012 which seems like a huge amount of time for a team like Red Bull so like is there some kind of hoodoo there I know they had obviously Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton's crash in 2021. There's a few issues last year that allowed Carlos Sainz to win. But yeah, there just seems something about Silverstone that Red Bull can't seem to win what is one of two home Grand Prix for them. So yeah, I'm going to be hopeful and say that maybe Silverstone
0: will produce a bit of a shock again and like we'll have a different different
2: person standing on the top of the podium.
0: I have two more questions for you and they're very much the same topics. So I'll read both of them and let you respond. First one's from Imi. She writes, massive morale, morale boost for Ferrari with Le Mans win. Super chafe for them. Does hypercar technology help develop F1 car at all? Interesting. Will we see an overall balanced and faster 24 car from Ferrari? Uh, and then Oxcart writes something similar. How is it possible for the Ferrari Le Mans team to be as good as the F1 team is terrible, it is the right company, right? So maybe reflect on, on the, Ferrari, if you watch Le Mans at all, but maybe reflect on their successes they had this weekend and maybe speak to whether hypercar technology maybe influences F1 technology and design at all.
2: Uh, I'm not entirely sure on that front. I mean, like it was obviously such a historic win 50 years out of the sport coming back. And I think, the amount of memes I saw with Leclerc there saying like oh he just wants to see a Ferrari car last more than an hour like there was just so many like even that F1 curse comes across I don't to be honest with you I don't know how much influence that has on like the F1 side of things like if anything it makes them look a bit worse that this team's able to come back to this sport that it hasn't done for 50 years and be able to win it like yet they I mean if we go back to the original reason Ferrari I didn't do Le Mans it was to focus on their F1 efforts and now come back full circle that they're they're doing much better in Le Mans than they are in um in F1 so I, I don't know how much that sort of plays into each other obviously it's it's going to be a morale booster for everyone associated with Ferrari to get to get a Le Mans win is is up there in terms of obviously in terms of motorsports achievement it's part of the triple crown like it's up there with Monaco and the Indy 500 so like it's going to improve morale like whether that translates into the F1 team I think the structural issues that I mentioned earlier sort of that doesn't just get improved by a morale boosting win. Like there's still a lot of issues there, and like, do you want to ask? I couldn't answer that full question of how much the two teams interact with each other. I guess that would be that vary between company and company. But if if there's something on the hypercar team that's going well and they're doing well, like they're bound to share that with the F one team. But I don't know how much sort of similarities they are between the two two series, just because they're they're very different regulations.
0: Another comment that just came in here uh, on the live feed from Ben. Which F1 rookie has impressed you the most so far this season and which F1 rookie has disappointed you the most so far this season? Ooh,
2: I think it's been a tough year for rookies so far, if I'm honest. I think, the be- I think the best one by far has been Oscar Piastri. I think that's one that we all, all expected. Like he, he he had the best pedigree coming into the sport. But I would, I'd caveat that by saying he's sort of been saddled like saddled by the car. The McLaren car is just, it's just not good. If we look at Landon Norris's results this year and he's he's a driver that we all know is very talented he's in his fifth year even he's sort of struggling to get performances and get results out of this car so I think Piastri is the one that I'd say has done the best so far I think he's you can correct me wrong but I think he's leading the driver standings out of the three of them uh in terms of the most disappointing ones I think it's got to be De Vries I mean he came in such such hype came in he sort of he was billed as the new leader of the AlphaTauri team gonna overtake for Pierre Gasly and sort of Yuki Sonoda's going to be put in his place as it were but the exact opposite happened Yuki's like driving out of his mind and just getting P11 annoyingly for him every time but he's doing so well and DeVries is already facing pressure I think like if you look at him as a package like Red Bull haven't invested any money in him he hasn't come from the driver academy he's not on a long contract So and he's quite old he's 28 so like there's no real benefits of Red Bull sticking with him like they've got Liam Lawson in their in their academy waiting to come up so yeah, I think he, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't I would be surprised if he was gone by the end of the season, to be honest with you. That seems quite a bold move, especially that it doesn't really happen since, like, Alex Albon sort of Pierre Gasly left the Red Bull team. But, yeah, I mean, De Ville's definitely been the most disappointed. Saying that, though, Sargent hasn't like pulled up trees, but again, he's sort of in the similar boat to Piastri that that Williams car is just not looking good lately. So it's, it's hard to show your best when your car Cars, a bit of a dud.
0: I have one more question before we take another break. This is from Ali in in Paris, and it's interesting. And he says Laurent Rossi was extremely critical of the entire Enstone team, including Otmar. He lit them up in the media with Canal Plus uh, during the Miami Grand Prix weekend. Does he not himself deserve a significant amount of blame for where this team is? Because was he not the one that opted not to give Fernando Alonso a contract extension in extra years last summer that led to his departure in the Oscar Piastri Fiasco. So interesting question, because I think Otmar has been under a huge amount of heat the last 18 months. Of course, last year's car was a car he inherited, and the A523 is the first car that he completely oversaw in the team, despite the fact that they've scored a podium now, have significantly underperformed as a full-on works team. But interesting question about where that blame should lie in Laurent Rossi, for those that don't know, is the CEO of the Alpine group. So he overlooks the Alpine road car division and the Alpine Formula One team, but he only seems to pop up at certain times and he's been incredibly I don't want to see disrespectful but he hasn't been helpful in his open criticisms of the team in the media your thoughts on Laurent Rossi versus Otmar
2: I think that's 100% fair to listen to us I think if I'm if I'm talking about interfering CEOs with Ferrari like it's just another level. <laughs> yes another, yes here. yes yes it's another level yes. of Alpine like Laurent Rossi's like I, yeah it seems to be he'll make a decision and then step back and sort of point at everyone else saying that was your fault when he was the one who made the decision like you're right to point to a losing Alonso and then the embarrassment of losing Piastri as well like yes he may have issues with the team like that's that's fine like a ceo is absolutely have problems like that but to go on to just to broadcast him in such public view to say basically say the whole team's rubbish like they're doing terrible like What's that going to achieve? Like, what do you think is going to come from that? Do you think Otmar's going to think, oh, well, great. My boss really supports me. Like, if you have these problems with him, I presume he's done this as well. But, like, speak to Otmar in private and say, like, look, what's going wrong? Like, what can we do as a team to help it? Like, it's not going to keep working if Rossi just keeps saying it's everyone else's fault. Because he can either be the kind of CEO that sort of sees the business side of it and doesn't really get involved with the sporting side of it. Or it can be this hands-on CEO that's involved in the sporting side of it, a bit like Christian Horner and obviously Turtle Wolf. But to do that, you have to then accept part of the blame, or a significant portion, of the part of the blame for these company decisions, like a, a bad car. I don't even think the, ba- the Alpine car is that bad this year as well. Which is sort of the bizarre thing. They sort of, I think, if you look at Alpine start, they had quite obviously had some weird anomalies that sort of led to their, the their coming together yeah, in exactly. Australia like their yeah. two drivers yep. crashed together otherwise that's a double point score like it's just very fine margins like that and obviously Alonso had a lot of unreliability problems last year sort of that brought their score down again so yeah I'm not a huge fan of Rossi I think he does often have these outbursts that just, personally I don't think it's beneficial to a team like I think if you have problems like I said do it in private like there's absolutely no need to go onto the media and slag off your essentially one of your
0: most important staff members that does seem like a bold strategy and one that's not going to pay off sam let's take one more quick break pay some of these proverbial bills and we'll finish off this podcast in just 30 seconds it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans Welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula One. Sam, I want to pivot back now to the concept of new F1 teams joining the grid. And this is kind of a multi pronged discussion. But to, to backtrack a little bit, in February, when the FIA opened their submission process or their expression of interest for uh, new teams joining the grid, they wrote, and I quote, the assessment of each application will cover in particular the technical capabilities and resources of the applicant team, the ability of the team to retain, or raise and maintain sufficient funding to allow participation in the championship at a competitive level and the team's experience in human resources. Further, it writes, for the first time ever, any candidate would be required to address how it would manage the sustainability challenge and how it plans to achieve a net zero CO2 impact by 2030. Any prospective F1 team would also need to illustrate how they intend to achieve a positive societal impact through its participation in the sport. This would help meet the mutual aims of the FIA and Formula One management. The overall long-term interest of the championship involving all stakeholders will determine which candidates are selected together with the applicable regulations and governance arrangements. So, despite the fact that we both know that starting an F1 team requires a massive sunk cost in the hundreds of millions of dollars, the FIA's requirements, while while significant, maybe aren't fair. And I say that because in the past, we've obviously seen teams join and quickly vanish, which isn't a good look for the sport, not good for for anybody involved. Uh, But your perspective on the teams that we believe have joined or have submitted an expression of interest and how successful you think each of those bids will be both by meeting the requirements of the FIA and then ultimately satisfying the needs of the Formula One management as well.
2: I think yeah I think we often criticize the FIA but I think maybe they deserve a bit of credit. I think I think FIA and the F1 over the last few years have done like a really good job of making all the teams financially stable like you said we had we had this period where like teams would pop up spend a load of money do nothing and then disappear and it just it looks very bad for the sport and like we've had this same grid now since 2016 when Haas came in yes Racing Point got renamed to Aston Martin and Renault became Alpine stuff like that but essentially it's the same 10 teams I think F1 and the FIA deserve a lot of praise they've got the sport to this place where these teams are all financially stable so I think on that side of things, I think it's fair enough that they're saying to these new teams, okay, you want in, you have to prove to us that you're going to be here 10 years down the line because we don't want a team to come in, come out again straight away. So I think that's fair enough. Like, I think the environment stuff's fair enough as well because I think F1 is sort of in line with the world and sort of really putting a focus on the climate. They've got this big net zero. I think 2030 is their aim. Like, I think it's fair enough to sort of expect a new constructor to come in sort of meet those guidelines. They don't want someone to come in and sort of move back on the on the environmental issues like a lot of the teams are very good of what they've been doing like mercedes in particular i think aston martin also very good with sort of their sustainability efforts. so i think it's that's fair whether this sort of like cultural thing is fair enough like it's hard to say really like obviously it sounds really good that they want to have these new teams like be a good force and like good impacts but is that something that you could have said okay after five years or whatever you can do it like We've seen teams like Red Bull Mercedes, obviously they all have their driver academies, they're all like nurture young talent, but not everyone does that, like, it's sort of like Has don't have their own driver academy really, like, so to expect a new team to come in and do that is, is quite harsh really, but on the flip side I think a lot of, um, or a few of the teams that are trying to get in are sort of using that as their selling point, so... If i'm moving on to the teams i think lucky sons which is this one that was announced last last month maybe sort of like born from the pantera bid like one of their big goals is to sort of get get asia really more involved and sort of not just a team of you and fans of you as whatever but also like on the driver front so setting up an asian academy getting drivers from all over that content sort of be involved and obviously you've got i think it's formula equal i might be getting the name one where they want to get more more women involved in the sport and that's a great thing as well so in terms of, is that enough to get them a space on the grid? i was sort of hesitant. I think, I still think it's 50-50 if anyone gets on the grid. I think the most likely has always been Andretti. I think they've done everything that's asked of them. They've got that General Motors sponsorship, and I think that was the last final tick that F1 teams are going to them and saying, look, you're not an original engine manufacturer, or, like, you're not a big name. Like, yes, you're a big racing name, but you're not a big brand, you're not a big car manufacturer. Like, we don't want you. So the fact they've got... Cadillac on board and be like, okay, we've done that. I think that gives them the best opportunity. And then sort of going through the other ones, I think it's just hard to know really like how how sustainable their bid is, not from an environment point of view, but like a financial point of view and a sporting point of view. So I've always said, Andretti is probably the most likely. I think we're we're sort of in this weird long phase of this FIA thing. It seems we go on for ages. It started in January, still sort of waiting for a final decision, and then the next hurdle of like the harder challenge of like making the F1 teams accept them or the FO, FOM as it were. So yeah, I think Andretti remain the most likely. Whether that happens, I think I'm still 50-50. I wouldn't be surprised if we get to 2026 and there's still still the same 10, 10 teams on the grid if some of them got a few different names, which they might do by that point.
0: Yeah, I feel the exact same way. And I think, and we don't know, and the FIA has been very clear recently that they will not be sharing publicly updates on the application process as they work through it. And we also don't know officially who submitted. We believe Andretti with the support of General Motors, their Cadillac brand, as you mentioned, High Tech, Formula Equal, Pantera, Lucky Sons, and, and possibly a Carlin bid. That's what we believe. I, I think it's pretty fair to assume that a couple of those have because they publicly announced they were going to submit a bid, but that's kind of where it stands. Now, the the main kind of challenge to all of this has been the FIA seems far more open to the concept of adding teams than Formula One. And I think Formula One kind of inadvertently, unexpectedly shot themselves in the foot when they wrote the most recent Concord agreement and the anti-dilution fee, the expansion fee, as it were, was set at $200 million. And I think at this point, the teams are like, what the hell, why should we share in the the gross proceeds of competing in Formula One with a new team that has contributed nothing to the sport and we'd only get a $20 million check uh, to compensate us for that. So I think this ties perfectly into the next story. And the next story is that, F1 and Stefano Domenicali are eagerly working on a new Concord agreement. Of course, the most recent one went into force in 21. It was agreed to in 2020. Maybe the first time in Formula 1 that there's been a very smooth transition from one agreement to another. In the past, they've obviously been very contentious but between the FIA and Formula One and the teams. Uh, that one went through very smoothly. It's been hugely successful. Uh, but it's reported that Stefano Domenicali, Formula One management, the FIA are actively working on a new agreement. But one of the things that's stated in the new agreement is that F1 is aiming to potentially have 12 teams on the grid and that that anti-dilution fee will shift from being $200 million to be a billion dollars which seems more reasonable given what we now understand the valuation of these teams to be of course there have been reports recently that alpha tauri was bid on at 800 million dollars that somebody has taken a 25 percent stake in Renault at 200 250 million dollars which would value it at 800 million dollars so the sense is f1 saying hey look we're now open to 12 teams we want 12 teams but those two additional teams are going to pay a billion dollars have you heard anything that contradicts this or is this what you're hearing in your reporting as well yeah, so we mentioned earlier about having people you trust. Like, I had someone I
2: trust who told me basically that that story about Daniel and Carly having meetings that that's just simply not true. Like, they were sort of baffled where it came from. There was sort of talk of a mysterious lunch during, I think it was the Monica Grumpy, but that that just didn't happen. I think F One have sort of been very secretive over what they want really. Like, yes, we're sort of in this phase now where I think twenty twenty five is it time the Concord Agreement comes in, so. It's natural that this point, this far out, teams are sort of gonna start and be like little suggestions of oh, maybe this would be working. Like sort of it's sort of the first step of negotiations. Like they're sort of setting this all out, they're gonna set it out ridiculously high for the teams. Like they're gonna say a billion. Like they probably realistically don't expect it to be a billion, but it's a negotiation tactic that we all know. Like, start high, work your way down. Like, but I think for sure, like the one issue that all the teams are going to be focused on in this new concord agreement is that is that figure to get a new team on the grid like when it was first signed a few years ago it was such a different landscape in terms of where where f1 was like it was it was either shortly before shortly after or maybe during like the covid pandemic like obviously the finances of the sport took a huge hit then so i think and the value of it at least sort of took a plummet a bit as well but also that's that's sort of before this just massive explosion of f1 popularity like since the last agreement signed like the sport is just so much more popular especially in the us we were talking about the free races over there it's just grown and grown and grown and obviously the value of the f1 teams involved in that has grown and grown and grown so i think it's fair enough to say the current figure isn't fit for purpose anymore i think it has been outgrown from where the teams are but it's going to be a hard challenge to see whoever like agrees to get 10 people 10 teams to agree on this one figure as well as f1 is going to be a very challenging thing because at the end of the day they don't want to put it unrealistically high in case there's a constructor that they all want in i know obviously they have the option of waiving it but they're never going to do that so i think the next hardest part between now and the signing the agreement is sort of okay let's get a figure that everyone's happy with and like like you said, we've had concord agreements in the past where it's taken ages to agree anything, and I think this is going to be another one where sort of this figure is going to be this it's going to be X amount, it's going to be X amount, like high, high, low, low. Eventually, they're going to come to a, a figure. I wouldn't be surprised if it's six hundred million or something like that. I think at least as a considerable amount more than it is for sure. Sam,
0: coming out of the Spanish Grand Prix weekend, there were rumors and stories that there was an imminent contract extension for Lewis Hamilton that was going to be announced. And I think even Lewis had suggested it could come as soon as the Monday, the day following the Formula One Spanish Grand Prix. Since then, we haven't heard a lot. We have heard rumors and stories that have been published suggesting that George Russell has extended his stay with Mercedes. Again, quote unquote, long-term commitment through 2025. What are you hearing on the contract front for the two Mercedes drivers?
2: Yeah, so the Russell one is true. I know I know for a fact, like, he's he's committed his long-term future to um to Mercedes. So he's he's sort of locked in. And I think that one was a lot easier to do because it was sort of part of his contract. They had the option to extend it. So they've just they've just done that, which is natural considering his performance of the last few years or year and a half, whatever it's been. He's obviously fit fit Mercedes perfectly well so that's sort of a natural thing. And Hamilton is a lot more complex. I mean I spoke about the FIA process taking a long time. I think this Hamilton contract's type like taken even longer. Like it was supposed to originally be done over winter break. Like Evan was sure it was going to be done over the winter break, and now we've come to essentially summer. It's summer now, like June, and still no deal has been arranged. Like initially, there was the talk that maybe he was waiting to see other team perform before he committed his future. Did he want to have another year with a car that's underperforming? There was always that link for Ferrari, which I personally think was a bit unrealistic. But maybe he was sort of thinking about that maybe i end my career where one of his heroes michael schumacher sort of did as well and like yeah i think it's sort of i i I, personally i think it will get signed i think he will extend i think it's hard to know how long for maybe another year like to take him to to the end of 2024 but i think he's gonna stay at mercedes at least for next year but it's all about when does that contract get signed to sort of put all this to bed. Like he did mention he's being with Turtle wolf on the Monday after the Spanish Grand Prix. And like, by the time this comes out or whatever, that's going to be a full week, a full week beforehand. So like, obviously not a lot of progress has happened. They're able to announce it, but I think it's like understandable. These negations will take a while. Like if, if, he was waiting to see how the team perform and then you've got the finances involved, that this is a very expensive contract it's, Probably the second most expensive contract in the sport, behind the Stappen. So yeah, personally, I think I can't give you a date of when it's going to happen. Like I don't think it's going to be soon, or I don't think it's going to be really far away. But I think at some point they will sign it. He will be there for twenty twenty four. Would be my guess.
0: Sam, what do you think? Lewis Hamilton and his camp were looking for in this agreement that obviously if, if there was a consensus between the two sides, the deal would be done. But do you do you think he's simply looking to, it could potentially be his last F1 contract. Maybe he's just looking for straight up cash value maybe he's looking for term maybe he's looking for options or do you potentially think there's something else to this that after more than a decade with this team and countless championships maybe he's looking for something else maybe he's looking for equity a piece of the team a long-term ambassadorship role that will pay him long past his his driver's days have you heard anything on those fronts or do you think it's just hey look they're talking about years and they're looking they're talking about value Mm
2: -hmm not particularly i think there was a rumor back in january from i think it's a french outlet saying that he wanted a like a a 10-year deal to be an ambassador i think mercedes pretty quickly came out and shot that down like i think on Hamilton's side of the point of view i don't think money is a huge influence like maybe he does want to have the most expensive contract ahead of max but at the same time like he's got enough money like there's not there's only millions you could have at the bank like i think for him it's always been more of a sporting objective that there's, there's no doubt he wants to win the eighth world championship and he wants to do that at the best place he can like yes he'd love to say mercedes it's been it's been a team that he's sort of been with the whole career i know he started McLaren, but obviously they were powered by mercedes during that time but i think yeah he's getting older like obviously alonso's sort of 41 but Hamilton's getting up there as well like he's sort of thinking okay i've got a few years left in the sport. I really want to get this championship win like where's the best place realistically that like, I could go to to get it and like it's sort of emerging that that's gonna that's most likely Mercedes behind Red Bull because let's be honest he's not he's not going to get that Red Bull seat so I think yeah I think it was always a sporting perspective for him rather than anything financial I would guess but only only he will know that really
0: in an article on formula1.com it's revealed that F1 design lead, legend Adrian Newey was twice tempted to go to Ferrari presumably once in the the mid 90s when he was with Williams and once subsequent to that of course he's been with the Milton Keynes based Red Bull team for the better part of the last decade and a half interesting and he's probably not the only the only F1 personality that's been tempted but ultimately not made the move what is the what is the lure why why are people compelled to go to to ferrari versus another team especially since so many of the so much of the human capital is in f1 are british and they're british based like what is the draw sometimes to ferrari beyond the obvious
2: ah that's difficult i think it is because it's ferrari it's like the oldest team on the grid they've been there since 1950 like just sort of a championship win with ferrari i'd imagine means so much more like to you as a person like and it's the ultimate challenge like especially now like can I be the person that fixes Ferrari? They have won a Drivers' Championships to 2007. It's been even longer since they won the Constructors' championship. So I could see the appeal of the challenge for anyone, really, like regardless if you're Adrian Newey. There was talk that they were going after after other Red Bull staff members. But like you said, there's just this weird, I don't know how it's happened really, but it's sort of just naturally evolved that sort of the heart of F1 teams is in the UK. Like even within the UK, so it's such a small area of land like they're all based around Silverstone like it's mad like yes McLaren are in Woking but even that's not too far away from wherever it is so there's just a real concentration of where all these teams are and I think for someone like Adrian Newey like, I heard him speaking about it like to go to Ferrari would be a good opportunity but like you have to sort of uproot your family to move to Italy obviously you don't speak the language I think he had very young kids at the time so he sort of got to find good schools for them and he did he did mention that he never wanted to be someone who sort of commuted so lived in the uk still but worked for ferrari he wanted to live in for live in italy and work close to the, to the, the factory and like that's just such an upheaval for anyone really like if, you, if we all picture our lives like someone would say okay you can go work in italy like you've got to move all your family stuff like that that's such a big upheaval like we often think that it's easy for people to jump across between f1 teams but unless you live in this weird F1 bubble in the UK where, like, everyone is in the same spot, that does mean you have to move house. Like, you're going to have to move into an entirely new way of life. So I think it's understandable that he chose not to do it and instead went to McLaren and then obviously on to Red Bull later, in later years. Like, And I think in a, in terms of where he is now, like, why would he leave? Like, he's he's in a team that's so clearly better than everyone else. I've mentioned Ferrari's problems so much already during this podcast. Like, why would someone like Adrian Newey, he, doesn't really want to be involved in that just wants to design cars like why would he choose to to sacrifice such a good gig he's got a red bull to go and do that like he's he's already made a legacy at red bull but to to continue to give them championship winning cars year after year just sort of solidified his place as not only a legend of red bull obviously but of the the sport entirely like easily makes him probably the best f1 designer we've ever seen
0: for those of us in North America, an awful lot of the F1 content that we consume is from the UK. It's just it's where the concentration of the teams are. It's where the historical media is generally concentrated. We listen to British podcasts and and vlogs, and we read British news stories like PlanetF1.com. What we can't see and what we can't read is the work being produced in Italy. Talk a little bit about the nature of the Italian press when it comes to covering Ferrari and covering F1. From my understanding, its I I use the word intense because I can't think of something more, more impactful or powerful. But maybe talk a little bit about the nature of the Italian media when it comes to covering Ferrari and Formula One.
2: I was gonna say brutal. I think brutal is the most obvious choice. <laughs> like it's 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 a different world. I think, I think, media in different in different countries are entirely different. I think a lot of the the Latin countries, they're sort of. I I'm reflect, uh, reflecting this to football or soccer as well. Like the Spanish newspapers, absolutely get on the back of Real Madrid and Barcelona every week. If they don't win by five 0 they're getting smashed. Like that's the same for Ferrari with for all the Italian media. Like if Ferrari aren't winning races, you can bet Monday morning there's going to be a headline on the front page saying Ferrari disaster, something like that. Like I think that's probably one of the lure of Ferrari, but obviously like one of the disadvantages of Ferrari. That like, it's just so intense, like. The whole country is there, like, sort of watching you, like, studying Ferrari. Like, yes, there's other Italian car brands. Like obviously, Avatari are technically based over there. But Ferrari is Italy's team. And, like, even the way they interact with the media, like, it's very rare for non-Italians to get, like, any kind of contact with Ferrari. Like, most of their news is spread out through the Italian media and then sort of filters out to us, as it were. But, yeah, I think it's very much, like, almost like a husband or wife situation where, like, they're so linked to each other but like they're just so like at each other's throat at at times but like this is such a mutual respect as well between them but like yeah it's a fascinating country like to have and a fascinating team as well to have such a team where you're so adored by everyone like but at the same time they're willing to absolutely rip you to shreds if you don't do the absolute perfect result every race and i think obviously in the situation where they are now like they haven't won a race this year they haven't won championships in years like Charles Leclerc looks like he's carrying the weight on his shoulders no doubt that's that's definitely impacted on him like but yeah i think it's all worth it if you see whenever a, a ferrari driver walks out of monza even out of his hotel he's swarmed by ferrari people like that just must be an unbelievable feeling like, and to win at monza like that just makes all all everything you've suffered through the year all those bad headlines like that's definitely worth it just for that one moment where you see the tofosi of their huge flags red flares
0: like that would be it as an F1 driver, I imagine. Sam, I can't thank you enough for joining us. My friend, where can our listeners follow you? Where can they find you on social media? And where can they check out your work? So yeah,
2: SamCooper underscore on Twitter and then f one on Instagram. I keep meaning to post on more on Instagram, but I must admit I'm very lazy. Um, and then yeah, <laughs> PlanetF1.com is where, is where I do all my writing. So yeah, head on over there and you should see at least a few,
0: hopefully, of my with my name on it. Sam, thanks again for everybody listening at home. We will be back later this week to get you ready for the Canadian Grand Prix. Hope you enjoyed this weekend episode with our very special guest, Sam Cooper. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again. Bye for now.
1: I feel like a locomotive
2: sipping, drinking, Arizona mixtape just around the corner did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, demand my songs gon' break through like a running back.